Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm joined as always by my colleague, Kelly Vlahos. Today we will be talking with Sumatra Maitra about NATO and shifting the burden of European defense to European allies. But first, let's talk about the UN Security Council vote authorizing a multinational mission for Haiti. The Security Council voted 13 to 0 in favor of the mission with abstentions from Russia and China, and the mission will be led by Kenya. We discussed the possibility of a Kenyan-led mission in Haiti on a previous show, and in the weeks since then, we still haven't learned many details about the mission. As journalist Jonathan Katz put it on his Substack this week, so what is the plan? Who knows? All that has been made public so far is that the multinational security support mission will be led by a thousand Kenyan police officers with troop officer contributions from at least three other British Commonwealth nations in the Caribbean, and that much, most, all of the mission's funding will come from the United States. The Washington Post reports that key details, including the size of the mission, when it will be deployed, rules of engagement, and exit strategy remain to be worked out. In my column for Responsible Statecraft this week, I called the mission plan half-baked, but that may, that may have been too generous. plan doesn't even have all its ingredients yet. So I don't understand how the Security Council can authorize a mission before they know these things. It fell to the Russian ambassador to point out the problem. The ambassador said authorizing another use of force in Haiti without a precise understanding of the parameters of the mission is short-sighted. And that's that's also being pretty generous, I think. Uh, it tells me that remarkably little thought has gone into how such a mission would work, if it even can work, and it suggests that there hasn't been enough attention paid to potential pitfalls and how to avoid them. And that's hardly an auspicious beginning for the latest in a string of interventions in Haiti. Human rights advocates and Haitian-American organizations have been speaking out against the new mission, citing the poor human rights record of the Kenyan police, and many critics fear that an outside force will just prop up an unelected and deeply unpopular government under Ariel Henry, the de facto prime minister who took over after the assassination of President Moise in the summer of 2021. I still haven't seen a strong case for a new intervention in Haiti after more than two years of people agitating for one. And that's because the policy doesn't make sense. Uh, U.S. backing for Henri is part of the problem in Haiti, as lots of Haitians will tell us. And U.S. support for this mission is part of that. And so it's going to be uh, in trouble from the start, I think. Uh, what do you make of it, Kelly? Can the Kenyan-led mission make a dent in Haiti's instability? Are you concerned that the U.S. will end up being pulled in to bail out the multinational force when it eventually runs into trouble? I think that's the biggest risk here. And you mentioned that in your piece on responsible statecraft today, uh, which I really appreciated. Um, and it's getting a lot of traffic, I think, because most people don't want to point out all of the pitfalls of this particular policy. I know people have hinted that there are, uh, and, and you, as, as you described too, there are civil leaders on the ground who have been resisting this, who have call, been calling out against it because they think that it's going to prop up Henri. And he uh, is, like you mentioned, is the de facto leader. He hasn't been elected as prime minister and there are no elections scheduled as yet. But I think the biggest pitfall is that we may have to go in if and when this fails. And you mentioned uh, a thousand Kenyan soldiers plus some additional soldiers from Caribbean nations. I don't think that's going to be enough. I know people have seen the devastating photos of the Port-au-Prince street, streets in recent times, the gang violence, the crushing poverty, the, 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 the streets and, and the infrastructure that, has, that have not been rebuilt since multiple earthquakes over the last two decades. This is um, a humanitarian disaster. To think that a thousand Kenyan soldiers 
and a few from here and there are going to go in and restore security is um, absolutely unconvincing. And I fear for the Kenyan soldiers, honestly. I mean, they're going to be guarding uh, municipal buildings, government buildings, um, and trying to maintain some order in the streets. But there is a massive gang problem there in which people are being murdered every day. People are fleeing their homes and living in sporting stadiums because they're not safe on the streets of Port-au-Prince right now. I, I, I fear that this mission is failed from the outset. The fact that the United States is the, the sole funder of it and only 200 million. You think of the $113 billion that we appropriated for Ukraine in the last year alone. And we're all set to give them billions more but yet we are only affording 200 million <laughs> to this security mission. I find it's just, it, it, like I said, a recipe for disaster. Well, and it, yeah, if, if the secure, and of course the security situation is very bad and, and, and everyone acknowledges that I think. Uh, but well, one of the things that we hear again and again from Haitian civil society leaders is that outside forces have repeatedly failed to address longer-term problems in Haiti, the, the political structures that both feed into the, the instability and, and actually profit from it, uh, because a lot of the political elite in Haiti is working hand-in-glove with these gangs. Uh, the, there's, I think there's an impression maybe in, in some parts of Washington that by backing on Riti, you're somehow taking a stand against instability, when, when really he's in the position he is uh, because of that instability, he's he he has sort of seized power. Because I mean, as as Katz put it in his piece, he was standing near the chair when the music stopped after Moise was killed. He, he he wasn't even the the designated prime minister at the time. He was he was supposed to be nominated, I think, but he hadn't even been nominated uh, for that post. So so his his position is is purely a matter of, of, of seizing power and then being having that power ratified by outside governments. The, the only reason that he's considered the head of the Haitian government is because the U.S. and other outside powers agree to pretend that he is. Um, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And so, of course, a lot of people in Haiti uh, want to see a Haitian-led solution, but, but that doesn't mean one that's led by someone like him. Uh, it means one that's led by forces of civil society in Haiti that have been pleading with the U.S. to stop backing this guy who has no legitimacy at all. And so it's, it's, it's of course, it's a very difficult situation. Uh, and it's, I can see why some uh, officials and diplomats have, have defaulted to this sort of interventionist mode for lack of alternatives, but but there are alternatives being proposed by people in Haiti, but no one's listening to them, and so I I, I think that's that's the the issue that we have to get back to. Uh, there there have there has to be a solution that acknowledges and, and respects Haitian sovereignty instead of trampling on it again, because the 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 more that Haiti depends on these sorts of outside interventions, the the harder it will be for it to develop its own functioning and successful institutions over the longer term. And so even if you had an intervention that 
improve the situation somewhat for a year or two, it's not going to address the, the core problems that keep leading to this instability and violence. And so I, I feel like there, there's not, in a sense, that they're, they're not taking the problem seriously enough. They're, they're happy to sign off on an intervention and, and treat it as if that's going to fix it. Uh, when there, there actually needs to be more sustained engagement uh, rather than this you know, militarized answer that, that we often uh, get from, uh, from our government and from, uh, from the international community. Yeah, and let's not forget that Ariel Henry was at one point a prime suspect in the planning of the assassination of his predecessor. Yes. That, that, yeah, yeah that. and that assassination has not been solved yet. So this poor country has to, to live through the vicious murder of its president, an entire um, transformation in its government. It's now being run by an unelected person who worked in Henri's government, but was also a prime suspect, at least I'm looking at a CNN piece right now, uh, at least back in February 2022. Uh, that he was being singled out. They said um, that there were a number of clues that were pointing to his alleged involvement in the assassination, both in plotting Moisey's death and in helping orchestrate the subsequent cover-up. So, I mean, this guy has a lot of red flags. And I think you point out correctly in your piece in Responsible Statecraft that by sending this outside uh, mission, security mission into Haiti will only result in propping up an unelected uh, government there. And we have done nothing to encourage elections. We are all set to intervene or at least push our allies and partners to intervene in situations, but not so much on the diplomatic front, the real work that it might take for an election, but also in helping the, the civil society, like actually engage in their own security. And it's a conundrum. And I, and I understand that because these are one of these cases where you look at what's happening on the ground there and you're like, what can we possibly do? And you have a United Nations that seems committed to sending in some outside force. But as you point out time and again, that has not worked in Haiti. Today is Sumantra Maitra. He is a senior editor at the American Conservative and an elected associate fellow at the Royal Historical Society. He's also the author of a new policy brief for the Center for Renewing America called Pivoting the U.S. Away from Europe to a Dormant NATO. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, it's uh, good to have you here. I, I enjoyed uh, reading the brief. Uh, it's a, an interesting uh, proposal. Uh, you argue for major burden shifting in Europe from the U.S. to European governments, and you propose an alternative policy that you call Dormant NATO. Uh, so what, what is this dormant NATO policy and how would the U.S. bring it about? So to start with, the, the original sin of, of European policy for, for the American government has been, in the recent years, the institutionalization of peace in the continent. So 
if you see the historical efforts of balancing in that continent, for example, uh, the British used an offshore balancing tactic where they kind of like had the like a local equilibrium and balance of power that used to be, and then prop up whenever there is a you know a, a, a small country facing a larger hegemon, you like kind of like start helping the smaller side to win the win the you know the balance. Um, America, uh, with good intentions, uh, so to speak, tried to institutionalize the peace under like one big umbrella. Um, first it was NATO and then obviously the European Union the political side of the NATO uh, spectrum. What happened though are in, in my in the research that I wrote and I, I wrote some of that in the in the introduction is two things. One, if you have uh, a whole continent under one single umbrella, the only way you can achieve peace is if that umbrella can constantly have the amount of force that's required to provide peace in that continent. Now, when you have disparate actors within, you know, that umbrella, there are different countries with their different specific interests, right? When you try to have all of those things, two things happen. One, geography is obviously uh, an important factor. So some of the countries on the east, they would try to constantly ensure that their benefactor, in this case, the United States, is there to provide for the security. Uh, on, in the West, however, there is a different thing that's happening. The West things that, you know, the Western parts of Europe, which are traditionally the balancers of Europe, like France, Britain, and Germany, they are rich countries. They see, hey, we have a buffer zone in the East between, you know, us and our major, potential major threat, Russia. Um, and we have a foreign country, a foreign hegemon coming and balancing and providing security. So what they try to do is buck passing. So the tendency in the American strategic circle is to think of Europe as this one single whole, that European continent, Europe's interest, European Union, Europe at peace, you know, all that stuff that's happened since 1989 onwards. That, to my opinion, is flawed because there is no single European interest. Uh, Robert Kagan uh, wrote a decent book, but then went to a completely flawed conclusion. He said, though, that the... Uh, the peace in Europe is unnatural. And that is true. The peace in Europe, the way it is, is unnatural because th that had never been the case. You know, Europe has different actors within, which has got different interests. And to ensure that the continent stays at peace would mean that someone has to be the hammer. You know, they, has, they have to bring down the hammer. And in this case, that's America. So my theory is to reverse that process. If you want to have an equilibrium in Europe and you want to have kind of like a natural balance of power play out, you would have to do two things. One, you would have to stop any kind of uh, expansion, whether it's NATO expansion or European Union expansion. Like, you know, both all of us know that even though we say that it's Europe's choice, at the end of the day, it's the American administration which pushes uh, the expansion of NATO and European Union. So that needs to stop. Simple reason, if you don't have finite borders, you cannot have finite interests, right? So you have to first define the geographic constraints of, of your entity before you can actually think like, okay, these are the finite strategic interests of that region. The second thing that America needs to do is to slowly start retrenching because one of the reasons why the European Union and, and, and the rich countries of Europe buck passes is because they know that they're foreign, you know, there is a foreign power which is there to, to you know, to break the shield, you know, in case there's a fire. So to move out of the continent, to move the troops out of the continent, to have the logistics, the infantry, the armor, uh, all the small things that Europeans can do, 
by themselves to move those things back to the European hand, to have a Sakyor who's a, who's a European instead of an American, to have British and German troops, for example, patrolling the Baltics. Uh, and, and so those are the primary two pillars. One, to stop any kind of expansion, to have a finite border, and two, to have logistics and armor. Now, I know some people want to move beyond that and they want to fully retrench troops from NATO. I do think that's prudent, but I just don't think there is a political... Uh, there's a political will in currently in D.C. Uh, that would support a full retrenchment. So what I propose is incremental you know, process through which we initially start with the army and the air, you know, air force. And we just have like uh, the fifth fleet, uh, the second fleet, for example, um, you know, patrolling the seas uh, in the Atlantic and the English Channel. But other than that, European power should be in European hands. Right. And uh, yeah, and a large part of your brief is, is making a strong case for burden sharing. Uh, as, as you alluded to just now in your answer, you were, you were talking about uh, Europeans not being able to, to trust the U.S. or to be dependent on the U.S. to come to their rescue. Uh, you say in the paper, uh, Europeans will never take their burden seriously until the U.S. is not there to break the glass in case of a sudden fire, Right, uh, as, as you said just a minute ago. Um, and unfortunately, I think U.S. policymakers are, are unwilling to take even the incremental steps you're talking about. Uh, they, they've never wanted to entrust European security to European governments uh, very, very much at all. They, they wanted to remain the dominant player. So, so how is is even that incremental change going to happen? Do you think? Um, that's a good question. There, I mean, in my opinion, there are again, like everything starts with you know the historical factors of this business. Uh, in, in this business, um, I think personally. Um, the fundamental instinct, the, the dilemma in, in front of, a, of an American you know, security strategy in Europe is, on one hand, America wants to be the dominant power in the, in the Western you know, sphere, you know, in, the, in the Western hemisphere, um, and, and that includes in Europe. Uh, and the other thing is, America, at the end of the day, is still a republic. I mean, one can argue whether it's a, it's a republic in the original sense that it was portrayed, obviously, and I agree with that, but... The governing system is still a Republican sort of governing system. It doesn't, it is not the British Empire. It doesn't create uh, a kind of like an imperial officer class, which is, you know, designed for that purpose. You know, that's not the case. Um, so there is this, you know, it needs to go to the people. It needs to argue and, you know, say that, hey, we are spending this much money. And, and, and what we have known and what we've seen is the American people are kind of frustrated and done with, you know, taking the burden of a rich continent. You know, you take polls after polls. You Every single, you know, president who wins power from Bill Clinton onwards, by the way, even George W. Bush, you know, wanted like when he, when he was, when he, when he ran for the election for the first time, he said like, you know, we need to move out of Europe and we need to focus on China. Obviously that changed, uh, but, 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 the, but the trend is clear. The American people votes for that candidate who wants to retrench or at least partially retrench from Europe. Or at least, I mean, I, I don't like the word burden sharing because I... There is never a shared burden. I, I tend to say burden shifting. You know, you have to shift the burden to the Europeans. You know, there is no sharing in this context. Europe is a continent of, even the through the in, in a conservative estimate, uh, a continent of 18 trillion GDP. You know, compared to their biggest threat, Russia, which is 1.8. That's 10 times the GDP of Russia. If they can't, you know, if we cannot shift burden to a continent which has got 10 times the GDP of their potential rival, who would we shift burden to anyway? I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a funny concept, you know. I mean, there is no sharing in this context. We just don't do it because we don't do it. If we do it, then they're going to pay. 
And okay, so that's part of the answer. The second part of the answer is uh, to the history question. You know, there is this instinctive dilemma in in the U.S. strategic community. Like it it, it was there even before, but it's kind of like increased. Uh, you know, post Cold War, is that like we need to be the hegemon, we need to be the top dog in the European continent, but also we don't really like paying for them, so they have to pay. And I think that created some kind of weird understanding in the political circles. But we we discourage the Europeans to do you know kind of things that would have helped us shift burden. For example, PESCO. Uh, when PESCO happened, you know, it was the American pressure which, like, you know, the Madeleine Albright first, even before PESCO, Madeleine Albright said that, like, you know, Europeans cannot duplicate, uh, you know, uh, assets in, in the European continent. They have to buy American weapons. They have to buy American platforms. I think that's wrong. I think that's, uh, I mean, one of the things that, to do this incremental process, I mean, the first things we need to do is kind of like have uh, encourage the kind of uh, setups that France and Greece, for example, had to balance Turkey in the Mediterranean that recently happened when the French and the Greek had this kind of naval uh, umbrella, the naval agreement that, you know, French warships are going to guard uh, Turk Greek coastlines. You know, we didn't really say much because we didn't really understand what was happening, but fair enough. I mean, that's fine by me. You know, uh, the second, the British-Polish uh, intelligence corporation was a good template for us to shift burden. The fundamental problem is this. We have institutionalized the peace, which means the general great powers, the, the natural balancers of Europe have you know they have gone beyond they have gone down from their capacity of what they used to be germany for example had 12 divisions in 1989 they don't why because they don't have to guard the frontiers because the frontiers moved east so if we need for them to spend more money and if we need it to be incremental the first thing we need to do is for them to feel that they are under threat and that we shouldn't be there so i think that's that should be the first step we should give them a timeline and say hey we have to focus on wherever we want to focus about, whether it's the southern border or China. I don't know. I mean, rhetorically, we can say a lot of things, uh, depending on what, you know, the American administration would want to say. But overall, we should give them a timeline of saying, like, this is the timeline. After that, you're on your own when it comes to logistics. You're on your own when it comes to, you know, figure out a way to move troops from Berlin to uh, to Baltics. You know, it's, it's not our responsibility. You need to figure that out. You know, we are not sending American striker battalions uh, just because you can't do that. Thank you for coming on the show, Sumatra. Really appreciate it. And I also very much appreciate your work uh, on this issue. My only concern is, is that we've already highlighted the fact that there seems to be no push for this within Washington because of this entrenched bureaucracy that you describe in your brief, and I've heard you talk about this as well, is that you have this self-sustaining ecosystem that when felt when it feels threatened, just finds new missions and new partners and more reasons to exist. They have a big giant reason in the Ukraine war uh, to expand to two more countries, two countries that were relatively neutral or peace peacekeeping um, have turned into very hawkish countries that are now, you know, basically re-engineering their, their whole idea of defense, particularly, I mean, Sweden has become very hawkish. Finland is, is just putting tons of money in, into defense. It has to basically um, mobilize to be the, a member of NATO. I just read a piece in the Washington, or no, in uh, 
the New York Times, Finland raced to join NATO. What happens next is complicated. It's a lot of work and it's very expensive to be part of NATO, but they're willing to do that. And so to go back to my, my I do have a question here. There doesn't seem to be a lot of um, energy in to in 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 this incremental change, and um, I, I don't want to use burden shifting, but to to literally um, shift, you know, the 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 the, the focus and loci of of NATO to Europe, and then you look at public opinion, and and you mentioned that you know over over time the American people wanted to uh, retrench to some degree. But I just wrote about the Chicago Council on uh, Global Affairs poll that came out today, you know, and they're showing that the American people really love NATO. Uh, Some 77 percent say the U.S. should maintain its support and commitment to the alliance. And that's down only a few points from 81 percent in July. So, um NATO itself has convinced the American people that it's not only relevant, but it should not, it should be as strong as it is now, if not stronger. And I'm wondering what, if you have a, have thoughts about where, where the softness is, where we could start pushing for this kind of change is, is the energy there? Are there constituencies there that I guess we could tap and, and, and push this message through? You actually asked me a question, which is about to be (laughs) funny, because I wrote two briefs, one on Finland and Sweden joining NATO and why that's wrong. And the second one is on dormant NATO and and, sorry. And and the third one is on like Baltics and, you know, how the Baltics chain gang America, you know, there's this fundamental idea in in international relations that great powers decide, um, you know, foreign policy for smaller states. You know, the counter argument is that is not often the case. I mean, if you see historically, it's the Federatis uh, who dragged Rome to war. You know, same, you know, during the First World War, it was, it was Serbia, which was like a, you know, a small power. Small powers have a lot of, you know, they have a lot of lobbying power. They're, 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 they're more risk prone. You know, they face more threat. So they are more, you know, dedicated in dragging their benefactor to war. So I kind of disagree with this, with this fundamental idea that great powers are the deciding factors of, of international politics. It's never been the case historically. But anyway, um, you actually asked me the question, which is supposed to be the topic of my next brief. And I'm going to give you a brief outline of what I was working on. So when I was working on the Baltic and the dormant NATO paper, one of the things that I looked for is the expansion of NATO bureaucracy. That has happened. There are currently around 1,100 bureaucrats uh, of NATO, which are civilian bureaucrats. And most of their jobs are not related to the direct remit of military uh, balancing anyway. You know, they they talk about a whole bunch of stuff like Roe v. Wade. I mean, I mean, there was some NATO official uh, in, a, in a meeting in, in, in some of one of the Baltic, I think it was Lithuania, or one of the Lithuanian embassies, who like commented when the Roe v. Wade uh, thing Dobbs decision came out about how <laughs> how you know uh, this is uh, this is a factor and how is, that's going to affect American strategy and American foreign policy. But anyway, um, so fundamentally, you raised three points. Let me categorize it um, in, in that question. The first point is on American grand strategy. How do we push the Europeans from you know to, to shift our burden to the Europeans? So that's that's point number one. Number two. What happens and how do we balance the internal 
bureaucratic pressure that is constantly on any elected politician. You know, there is this, I don't want to use the term deep state because deep state kind of sounds like a Turkish government where, the, you know, there's, a, there's this room where people just sit and discuss. It's much more organic in the U.S., you know, you know, you don't need a smoke field room. You can go to the Pentagon and people just talk about the same language. You know, there is this Michael Anton uh, once mentioned this term that you can find. And if you talk to anyone in the Pentagon about intra-agency uh, consensus, now no one can define what that is. You know, it, <laughs> no one actually knows what that consensus is. People just know that there is a consensus. And that actually, <laughs> yeah, and that, and that actually happens in a very organic way. Most of the people who are coming out of the universities who are studying the exact same theories that they're, you know, you know, studying for the last 20 years. They're going in the exact same process. They're doing the internships in the exact same way. They're talking to the exact same people. It doesn't need to be like a smoke-filled room. It, it, it kind of like organically develops that, that it's a hive mind in a way. The third point you mentioned is the informational hegemony, public opinion. Now, some of the questions in the polling, if you read, you would see very base questions. Like you remember when the no-fly zone issue happened, um, there were like 72% support for no-fly zone, right? And then Stephen Wertheim and Will Rigger originally you know, organized that letter where, you know, all of us probably signed, you signed, I signed, you know, it came out in Politico, where we actually explained what a no-fly zone is. Like you have to shoot down Russian jets, you have to actually suppress the anti-aircraft missiles which are based in Russia because they have got a 300 kilometer range you know that so you have to so you cannot have NATO jets flying over Ukraine unless you destroy those anti-aircraft missiles based in Crimea which means by definition a war with Russia the moment that was explained in that letter public opinion went down so what does that implicate you know what's that, what does that imply it implies that there is this informational hegemony in 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 the in the media system in the media cha eco chamber where you you have the same kind of people getting quotes from pentagon you you know open you know you start morning tv you see wesley clark giving a quote you know it, it, it's it's just it's 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 absurd but it is there the problem with unipolarity is not just structural you know structurally unipolarity uh because, you, you know, unipolarity means you don't face any kind of external threat which, you know, directly infringes your homeland, you tend to make mistakes and you tend to just move forward with that. Like, you, you tend to be stupid because of unipolarity. You know, that doesn't happen in multipolarity. So one of the good things that's happening is structural because we are moving automatically in an era which is going to be like a pre-World War Europe. Uh, the structural pressures would be visible, if not today, tomorrow. It's it's going to happen, you know, eventually. It's already happening in some ways. The fact that we couldn't do anything in Syria is a sign of structural pressure. You know, we are not, you know, going to go to war over, you know, a base in, in, in Syria. We, I mean, we are still there, around, but we are not directly fighting Russians, you know, because of multipolarity. The fact that we are not already sending an aircraft carrier to Taiwan, even though not for lack of trying, is because there are structural pressures, you know? So eventually with the decline of relative power of the United States and the more bloated economic situation, that structural pressure is gonna come. The second problem of unipolarity is not structural, it's domestic. The problem with unipolarity is because of unipolarity and because of the 20 years of reflexive ideas of, you know, that, that goes on, especially during the war on terror, like that the people tend to forget that the, the expansion of bureaucracy where people are, you know, talking about liberal values and they happen under George W. Bush. You know, you know, there was this 
I think it was like what thirty six percent increase of civilian, uh, you know, uh, leadership in in the Pentagon who are just essentially human rights grads from different universities. That is the only language they understand. You know, it it, it goes back to the base of the problem. You know, what what are they teaching? What are they talking in the media? You know, they're teaching those things in the university and they're talking those things in the media. How will the public opinion change? It's not it's not going to happen magically, right? I mean, there there needs to be a counter push. Uh, to to kind of like balance that, you know, and, and that happens. Like there are optimistic signs, especially in the no-fly zone debate, you know, that that happens when you actually push back against that, that you know, that idea. People are, people are not just dumb, you know, people understand the simple, you know, language that, you know, you if you go to war with a nuclear power, you're going to, if you try and save Crimea, you know, you're going to have Massachusetts bombed out. It, 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 simple trade-offs, you know, it's not difficult for people to understand. And if you explain that to the people, they do understand. But the problem is we don't really have that many people. I mean, there is this, you know, you, most of the major channels just get all the people from Atlantic Council, you know, former yeah. generals, you know, Ben Hodges coming and talking. And the guy really did nothing throughout in his life that he deserves that that, that kind of a platform. But that happens. So it's a multi-causal thing. I mean, the, the, it, I cannot say that which one needs to happen first, uh, but I do think uh, the domestic causes can be balanced easily before we move forward with, with the with the retrenchment abroad. So what I mean is like cutting down on the NATO and NATO bureaucracy, you know, um, cutting down on, on, on the human rights programs, cutting down on USAID. These are the kind of things that's in the hand of the president. That's, that's easily doable, you know. Uh, and it doesn't matter who's going to win. Like the top three uh, Republican candidates, they might not be perfect, but they're all, you know, sounding the same things. We're going to cut down USAID. We are going to, they're also saying that we're going to go to war with Mexico. That bothers me. But but but, but at least on, on, on Ukraine and on USAID and all these kind of issues, they're sounding and they're talking in the language that we kind of like listening to. So that's fine. That's a good thing. Um, uh, there needs to be a counter elite when it comes to the media. Um, yeah. There, there needs to be a, a, one of the things that I read recently is um, a major left wing donor, and I'm not going to name, bought um, I think around 150 or something like that news local newspapers. We don't see any kind of thing happening on the right, you know, which is similar to that. You know, those are the kind of things that That's would a good happen. Point. Yeah, you know, I mean, how many people are just buying or funding small magazines in in Raleigh, North Carolina? You know, which which would if you want a libertarian or even a you know paleoconservative foreign policy, you need to have a libertarian and paleoconservative localist movement that would support that. You know, that's not happening. Yeah, you know, we 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 can't we 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 are we are we are dependent on the Leviathan to cut down the Leviathan. That's not that 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 life isn't like that. You know, it's it's. I don't know. I mean, I think I think the local factors needs to be balanced first when it comes to the national security bureaucracy and at least when it comes to information in Germany. There are good works done. I mean, obviously, the signs are there, like, you know, the Warren Davidson's uh, Define the Mission bill got 119 support. That's optimistic. That didn't happen yeah. in the last 20 years. And that's a good sign. So I think those things need to happen first before we can move on to a to more base foreign policy. Well, um, and I know we only have a, a minute or two left, but, you know, one of the things where I think that we could start making an impact is pointing out all of the problems of NATO that the Ukraine war have has exposed or have exposed as opposed to the alternate argument which is NATO is is as necessary as ever if not more so because of the Ukraine war and I'm specifically pointing to 
the fact that they're already running out of ammunition. The weapons that they're giving Ukraine are often in disrepair or second rate. They've promised to put 300,000 troops closer to Ukraine as a result, and nobody knows where they're going to come from. There was a piece in the New York Times recently about all the challenges that NATO faced, not only with stockpiling, but the, the sharing, the networking of all the disparate weapon systems and radar and monitoring the tech. It's not a well-oiled machine the way that that's broadcast by the 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 predominant media. I mean, apparatus. the one thing which I, the one thing which I want to mention it's very shortly, and I, I agree with you. One of the things that people can help in making the American people understand what their money is being spent is to go to the NATO website, find out how many social programs or how many you know uh, things that they're doing, and just point that out. You know, have a have a have a have a chart saying like these are the these are the things that we are doing. These are the amount of money we are spending by GNP. US is the largest spender in NATO. You know, so that's the amount of money we are spending, and for what? Because of we, we want to have these kind of social you know rights movements in some parts of Eastern Europe. You know, that's American taxpayers' money, or if like money printed, so which means like it's it's harming the American taxpayers anyway. So I think I think that's a very simple thing that we can do. Like just just have you know someone just draft out all the things that NATO is doing, which are not military. They are yeah. social programs funded fundamentally by the United States because of GNP. So I think I think I think those small things would eventually help in people understand how much bloated the system is. Mm-hmm. So I am very appreciative of the work you're doing on this. I'm excited that you're writing another brief. So will you come back on the show to talk about that? Because it, as you say, it's it's focusing more on, on the bureaucracy. Yeah. And I think that that's the, the sort of sleeper issue here. Um, and I think that the American people would be very interested in reading about this ecosystem and how the self-sustaining nature of it is preventing a real debate about whether we really need this alliance anymore, at least in the capacity yeah. that it is now. So thank thank you for coming on. Thank and you very much. And talking with you again. Thank you both. Thank you. Oh, and where can we find your brief? Uh, the dormant, uh, for CRA, I, I work as a senior fellow there. So, I've, so just yeah. go to the website. Yeah, it'll come out. I'll send it to you. Awesome. Okay. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.